friends, and welcome back to Bitching About the Decameron. We are up to the tenth story on the eighth day, a day which has been full of tales of tricks played upon people by their friends, their enemies, and their lovers. And so now we shall hear what Dionysia has to say, and whether he chooses on this occasion to stick to the theme. There is no need to inquire whether the ladies laughed heartily over certain of the passages from the Queen's story. They laughed so much that the tears ran down their cheeks a dozen times at the very least. But when the tale was ended, Dionysia, knowing it was now his turn, addressed the company as follows. Gracious ladies, it goes without saying that the more cunning a person is, the greater our satisfaction in seeing that person cunningly deceived. And hence, Whilst the stories you have told have all been excellent, the one I propose to relate should afford you greater pleasure than any of the others, inasmuch as it concerns the duping of a lady who knew far more about the art of deception than any of the men or women who were beguiled in the tales we have heard so far. In the seaports of all maritime countries, it used to be the practice, and possibly still is, that any merchant arriving there with merchandise, having discharged his cargo, takes it to a warehouse, which in many places is called the Dogana, and is maintained by the commune or by the ruler of the state. After presenting a written description of the cargo and its value to the officers in charge, he is given a storeroom where his merchandise is placed under lock and key. The officers then record all the details in their register under the merchant's name, and whenever the merchant removes his goods from bond, either wholly or in part, they make him pay the appropriate dues. It is by consulting this register that brokers, more often than not, obtain their information about the amount and value of the goods stored at the Dagana, together with the names of the merchants to whom they belong. And when a suitable opportunity presents itself, they approach the merchants and arrange to barter, exchange, sell, or otherwise dispose of their merchandise. Among the many seaports where this system prevailed was Palermo in Sicily, which was also notable, and still is, for the number of women, lovely of body but strangers to virtue, who to anyone unfamiliar with their ways are frequently mistaken for great ladies of impeccable honesty. Their sole aim in life consists not so much in fleecing men as in skinning them wholesale, and whenever they catch sight of a merchant from foreign parts, they find out from the Dagana register what goods he has deposited there and how much he is worth, after which, using all their charms and amorous wiles and whispering honeyed words into the ears of their unsuspecting victim, they attempt to ensnare him into falling in love with them. In this way, they have enticed a large number of merchants to part with a substantial proportion of their goods, and a great many others to hand over the entire lot, while some of them have been known to forfeit not only their merchandise, but their ships as well, and even their flesh and bone, so daintily has the Lady Barber known how to wield her razor. To Palermo, then, not so very long ago, there came one of our young Florentines, Niccolò da Cignano by name, though he was generally known as Salabaeto, who had been sent there by his principals with a consignment of woolens, worth about five hundred gold florins, which were left over from the fair at Salerno. Having handed the invoice for these goods to the officers of the Dagana, he put them into store, and without showing any great eagerness to dispose of them, he began to see what the city could offer him by way of amusement. Since he was a very handsome youth, of fair complexion, with blonde hair and a most shapely figure, it was not long before one of these lady barbers, who styled herself Madonna Giancofiore, 
having gleaned some knowledge of his affairs, began to cast glances in his direction. The young man, perceiving this, and assuming her to be some fine lady who had fallen for his handsome looks, decided that he would have to be very careful in conducting this little amour, and without breathing a word about it to anyone, he took to walking past her house at frequent intervals. He was soon observed by the lady, who after kindling the flames of his passion for a few days by flashing her eyes at him and appearing as if she was pining away for his love, secretly sent one of her maidservants to call upon him. This woman, being well-versed in the arts of the procuress, spun him a long rigmarole, and then, almost bursting into tears, informed him that her mistress was so taken up with his handsome looks and agreeable manners that she was unable to rest by day or night. She therefore hoped that he would agree to meet her in secret at some bagnio, there being nothing she more ardently desired, and finally, taking a ring from her purse, she handed it over to him with the lady's compliments. When he heard this, Salabaeto was the happiest man who ever lived, and taking the ring he brushed against his eyelids, kissed it, and put it on his finger, telling the good woman that Madonna Giancofiore's love was fully reciprocated, since he loved her more than his very life, and that he was ready to meet her wherever and whenever she pleased. The go-between returned with this answer to her mistress, and soon afterwards Salabaeto was informed that he was to wait for her at a certain bagnio on the following day after Vespers. Without giving the slightest hint to anyone about where he was going, Salabaeto swiftly made his way to the bagnio at the appointed hour, and found that it was reserved for the lady. He had not been there long before two slave girls arrived, one of whom was carrying a fine big feather mattress on her head, whilst the other had a huge basket filled with this, that, and the other. So, slave girls, it's... It can feel weird sometimes coming across mention of slaves in medieval stories like this because there's such a thriving economy of varying kinds of paid service. And because when we picture slaves, we're used to picturing, well, the transatlantic slave trade. It seems like something that is simultaneously very, very old and very modern. And we all know that in the Middle Ages there were serfs. That was slavery in the Middle Ages. But there were actually slaves as well. The distinction is pertinent. A serf is somebody who is hereditarily bound to the land and to the conditions of lordship attached to that land. So they inherit the property where they live, but it's like an inherited rental property that they can't leave. So they owe taxes in the form of both goods and labour, and that's why it does get compared to slavery, because there are similarities. But there's differences between serfdom and indentured servitude and outright slavery. And we've heard slavery mentioned in the Decameron before. We've heard mention of a couple of a couple of kids that were taken by pirates and sold as slaves. And slavery was definitely a thing happening in the Middle Ages and in the area around the Mediterranean. And there was often particular concern about Christians being sold as slaves to non-Christians in the, in the non-Christian regions around the Mediterranean. And when you think about these cities that are full of trade and commerce and in some ways, they feel very modern. That might just be because I'm used to looking at the Middle Ages, and so it feels very modern. And yet, 
there was also slavery. It was a thing. Having laid the mattress on a bed in one of the rooms of the Bugnil, the slave girls covered it with a pair of sheets, fine as gossamer and edged all round with silk, over which they placed a quilt of whitest Cyprian buckram, together with two exquisitely embroidered pillows. Then they undressed, got into the bath, and washed and scrubbed it all over until it gleamed. Nor was it long before the lady herself arrived at the Bugnio, attended by two more slave girls. She no sooner saw Salabeto than she rushed ecstatically forward to greet him, flung her arms round his neck and smothered him with kisses, and after heaving several deep sighs, she said, My fascinating Tuscan, I know of no other man who could have brought me to do this. My heart is all on fire because of you. She then undressed, bidding him to do the same, and they both stepped naked into the bath, attended by two of the slave girls. Nor would she allow either of the girls to lay a hand upon him, but she herself washed Salabaeto from head to toe with marvellous care, using soap that was steeped in musk and cloves, and finally she had herself washed and rubbed down by the two slave girls. This operation completed, the slave girls fetched two sheets, white as snow and very finely woven, from which there came the fragrant smell of roses, so powerful that it seemed the Bugnio was filled with roses and nothing else. Having wrapped Salabaeto in one of these and their mistress in the other, the slave girls took them up and conveyed them both to the bed, where, when they had ceased to perspire, the sheets enfolding them were removed and they found themselves lying naked between the sheets of the bed. Silver vials, exquisitely wrought, were then produced from the basket, some filled with rose water, others with the water of orange flowers or jasmine blossom, with which their bodies were liberally sprinkled by the slave girls, after which they refreshed themselves for a while with precious wines and sweetmeats. And all of this is just incredibly, excessively, hyperbolically luxurious. This is so incredibly over the top, an enormous expenditure, enormously rich goods. Salabaeto thought he was in paradise, and devoured the lady a thousand times over with his eyes, for she was assuredly a very beautiful woman. Every hour that passed seemed to him a hundred years as he waited for the slave's girls to depart so that he might find himself in her embrace. Eventually, however, at the lady's command they withdrew from the room, leaving a lighted torch behind them, whereupon she and Salabaeto fell into one another's arms, and there they remained together for some little time, the immense delight of Salabaeto, who imagined her to be wasting away out of her love for him. At length the lady decided it was time for them to rise, so she summoned the slave girls who helped them to dress. They then took some further refreshment in the form of wine and sweetmeats, and washed their faces and hands in the flower-scented waters. And as they were on the point of leaving, the lady said to Salabaeto, If it pleases you, I should consider it a very great favour if you were to come to my house for supper this evening, and spend the night with me. Being thoroughly taken in by her beauty and her calculated charm, and firmly believing that she loved him to distraction, Salabaeto replied, Whatever pleases you, my lady, is infinitely pleasing to me. Ask of me what you will, therefore, whether this evening or at any other time, and I shall do it gladly. And so, returning to her house, the lady arranged for an impressive array of her gowns and other paraphernalia to be put on display in her bedroom, and having given instructions for a magnificent supper to be prepared, she waited for Salabaeto to come. As soon as it was reasonably dark, he made his way to the house, where he received a rapturous welcome, and after a most convivial supper, impeccably served, she led him off into the bedroom. 
The air was heavy with the wondrous fragrance of eaglewood, and looking round he observed that the bed was profusely adorned with mechanical songbirds, and that masses of beautiful gowns were hanging from the walls on pegs. All these things together, and each in particular, led him to the firm conviction that she was a great and wealthy lady. For although he had heard one or two rumours betraying her in quite a different light, nothing in the world could persuade him that there was any truth in these reports, and even if the suspicion crossed his mind that she had beguiled men before, he could never imagine for a moment that the same thing would happen to him. It would be impossible to describe his bliss as he lay all night in her arms, the flames of his love burning ever more fiercely. And when morning came, she fastened a dainty and beautiful little silver girdle round his waist, with a fine purse to go with it, and said to him, My darling Saveto, I implore you to remember that just as my person is yours to enjoy, so everything I have here is yours, and all that I can do is at your command. Salabaeto took her in his arms and kissed her, then walked jauntily forth from the house and made his way down to that part of the city where his fellow merchants forgathered. From then on he consorted with her regularly without spending so much as a farthing, becoming ever more deeply enamoured. And when, eventually, he disposed of his woollen goods for ready money at a substantial profit, the good lady was immediately informed, though not by Sabaeto himself. On the following evening, Sabaeto called to see her, and she began to jest and frolic with him, kissing and hugging him with such a show of burning passion that it seemed she would die of love in his arms. And she kept asking him to accept a pair of exquisite silver goblets, which Salabaeta refused to take, having at one time and another had presents from her worth at least thirty gold florins, without ever managing to persuade her to take so much as a silver groat in return. At length, however, when she had worked him up into a frenzy of excitement with her display of passion and generosity, she was called away from the room by one of her slave girls, acting upon instructions received beforehand from her mistress. After a brief absence, she returned, her eyes full of tears, and hurling herself face downwards on the bed, she began to give vent to the most piteous wailings that ever issued from a woman's lips, much to the astonishment of Salabaeto, who took her in his arms and mingling his own tears with hers, said, Ah, dearest heart of my body, what has happened to you so suddenly? What is the cause of all this sorrow? Oh, do tell me, my darling. After allowing Salabaeto to coax and cajole her for some little time, the lady replied, Alas, my sweet master, I know not what to do nor what to say. I have just received a letter from my brother, who writes from Messina, telling me that unless I send him a thousand gold florins without fail within the next seven days, by selling and pawning everything I have in the house, he will lose his head on the block. I have no idea how I am to find so large a sum at such short notice. If only I had a fortnight at my disposal, I should be able to raise twice the amount by collecting a certain sum of money that is owed to me, or I could sell one of the family estates. But since this is out of the question, I wish I'd been struck dead before this dreadful news had ever reached my ears. At which point she broke off, appearing sorely distressed, and the tears rolled down her cheeks in a never-ending torrent. Salabaeto, who in the heat of his amorous passion had mislaid a substantial part of his wits, thought that her tears were genuine, and her words even more so. And he replied, Be of good cheer, my lady, for though I couldn't supply you with a thousand, I could certainly let you have five hundred gold florins, if you are sure you can repay me within the next fortnight. Fortunately for you, I managed only yesterday to dispose of my cargo of woolens, otherwise I shouldn't have been able to lend you a groat. Do you mean to say, said the lady, that you have been short of money? Why on earth didn't you ask me for some? I don't have a thousand, but I could easily have given you a hundred, and possibly two. 
Now that you have told me all this, I simply wouldn't have the heart to accept your offer of assistance. Deeply touched by these sentiments, Salabeta replied, There is no reason for you to refuse, my lady. If my own need had been as great as yours, I should certainly have asked for your help. Oh, my Salabeta, exclaimed the lady, I plainly perceive that your love for me is true and perfect, when without waiting to be asked for such a large sum of money, you freely offer to help me in my hour of need. And though I was all yours without this token of your love, from now on I shall assuredly belong to you even more completely, nor shall I ever forget that you saved my brother's life. God knows that I am reluctant to accept your offer, knowing that you are a merchant, and merchants do all their business with money. But I shall accept the money all the same, for my need is very urgent, and I am quite confident that I shall be able to repay you in the near future. And as to the remainder of the sum I require, if I cannot find any swifter way of raising it, I shall place all these belongings of mine in pawn. Whereupon she flung herself in tears across the bed, and buried Salabayato's head in her bosom. Salabayato then set about consoling her as best he could, and after spending the night with her, he proved his generosity and devotion towards her by bringing her five hundred sparkling gold florins without waiting to be asked. These she accepted with laughter in her heart and tears in her eyes, promising to repay them as soon as she could, which was all that Salabayato required by way of bond. Now that she had her hands on the money, it became a different story altogether. For whereas he had always had free access to the lady whenever he pleased, she now began to fob him off with various excuses, so that nine times out of ten he was turned away from the house, and even when he did get in to see her, she no longer greeted him with the smiling countenance, the caresses, or the lavish hospitality to which he had previously been accustomed. Not only did the lady fail to repay Salabeato by the date she had promised, but a further month went by, then another, and when he asked her for his money, all he could get out of her was a string of excuses. Salabeato now realised how cleverly he had been taken in by her villainy, and knowing that he could prove nothing against her, for he had no written evidence of the transaction, and there were no independent witnesses, he was exceedingly distressed, and reproached himself bitterly for his foolishness. Moreover, he was too ashamed to lodge a complaint with the authorities, because he had been warned of her character beforehand, and had only himself to blame if he was made a laughing stock for behaving so stupidly. And when he received several letters from his principals, ordering him to change the money and forward it to them, fearing lest his lap should be discovered if he remained in Palermo any longer without obeying their instructions, he decided to leave. So he boarded a small ship, and instead of sailing to Pisa, as he should have done, he went to Naples. Now, there happened at that time to be living in Naples a compatriot of ours, Pietro dello Canigiano, who was treasurer to Her Highness the Empress of Constantinople. A man of great intelligence and shrewdness, and a very close friend of Salabaeto and his family. Knowing him to be the very soul of discretion, Salabaeto took him into his confidence a few days after his arrival, told him about what he had done and about the sad fate which had befallen him, and requested his assistance and advice in finding some means of livelihood in Naples, declaring that he had no intention of ever returning to Florence. Saddened by what he had heard, Canigiano replied, A fine state of affairs, I must say. A fine way to carry on. A fine sense of loyalty you've shown to your employers. No sooner do you lay your hands on a large sum of money than you squander the lot in riotous living. But what's done is done, and now I must look to the remedy. Since he had a shrewd head on his shoulders, Canigiano quickly saw what was to be done, and explained his plan to Salabaeto who, thinking it an excellent idea, set about putting it into effect. He still had a little money of his own, and supplementing this with a loan from Canigiano, 
he ordered a number of bales of merchandise to be packed and tightly corded up, and having purchased and filled about a score of oil casks, he loaded the entire consignment aboard a ship and returned to Palermo. There he presented the invoice for the bales to the officers of the Dagana, to whom he also declared the value of the casks, and having made sure that they registered everything under his own name, he placed the goods in store, saying that he wished to leave them there until the arrival of a further consignment of merchandise he was expecting. On learning of his return, and hearing that the goods he had brought were worth 2,000 gold florins at the very least, without counting the goods still to come, which are valued at more than 3,000, Madonna Giancofiore, thinking she had set her sights too low, decided to repay him the 500 gold florins so that she could get her claws on the greater portion of the 5,000, and sent word that she would like to see him. When Salabaeto called upon her, she pretended to know nothing of the merchandise he had brought, and gave him the warmest of welcomes, saying, Listen, my love, in case you were angry with me for not paying you back that money of yours punctually. But Salabaeto, having profited from his earlier mistakes, laughed, and said, To tell the truth, my lady, I was very little displeased, for I would pluck the very heart from my body and give it to you if I thought it would make you happy. But I should like you to judge for yourself how angry I am with you. So great and so particular is the love I bear you that I have sold the greater part of my possessions, and now I have brought with me to Palermo a consignment of goods worth over two thousand florins. Moreover, I am expecting a further consignment from the west worth more than three thousand, and I intend to start a business in Palermo and settle here for good, for I consider myself more fortunate in loving you than any other lover in the world. I do assure you, Salabaeto, said the lady, that any success of yours gives me enormous pleasure, since I love you more dearly than my very life, and I am delighted that you have returned here with the intention of staying, for I hope we shall still have many a good time together. But I owe you a little apology for all those occasions before you went away when you wanted to come here and I was unable to see you, as well as for the times when you came and you were not so well received as usual. And I must also ask you to forgive me for not repaying your money by the date I had promised. You must remember that I was terribly sad and distressed at that particular time, and whenever a woman is in this condition, no matter how much she may love anyone, she cannot be as unfailingly cheerful and attentive towards him as he would like her to be. Besides, as you can hardly fail to realise, it is no easy matter for a woman to scrape together a thousand gold florins. We are always being fobbed off with lies, and people fail to keep their promises to us, with the result that we ourselves are compelled to tell lies to others. It was for this reason alone, and not through any ulterior motive, that I failed to pay you back. However, I did obtain the money shortly after you went away, and had I known your address, you may be quite sure that I would have sent it on to you. But since I didn't know where you were, I put it away for you in a safe place. Then, having called for a purse that contained the very florins he had given her, she placed it in his hand, saying, Count them, and make sure they come to five hundred. Salabaeto had never felt so happy in his whole life, and having counted the florins and confirmed that they amounted to exactly five hundred, he tucked them away, saying, I know that you are telling me the truth, my lady. Indeed, you have done more than enough to prove it, and because of this, as also because of the love I bear you, I assure you that whenever you are in need of money in the future, and it is within my power to supply it, you have only to ask and it shall be yours. Once I have set up my business here in Palermo, you will see for yourself that this is no idle promise. Having thus cemented his love for the lady by means of these verbal protestations, Salabaeto began once more to play the gallant with her, whilst for her part she entertained and solaced him for all she was worth pretending to love him to the point of distraction. However, Salabaeto was determined that his own duplicity should punish hers, 
and on one evening, having received an invitation from her earlier in the day to sup and spend the night with her, he turned up at her house looking so distraught and miserable that it seemed he was about to die at any moment. Fiore, hugging and kissing him, began to question him about the reasons for his sadness, and after allowing her to wheedle him for a while, he replied, "'I am utterly ruined, for the ship carrying the goods I was expecting has been seized by Monegasque pirates. They are demanding a ransom of ten thousand gold florins, of which I have to pay a thousand, and I haven't a penny to my name, because as soon as you paid me back those five hundred florins, I sent them to Naples to be invested in a consignment of linen which is now on its way to Palermo. If I were to sell the goods I have in store here at the moment, I should lose half their true value because it's the wrong time to sell. On the other hand, I can't find anyone here to lend me the money because I am still not well enough known in the city. Hence I have no idea what to do or what to say. If I don't send the money soon, my merchandise will be shipped to Monaco and I shall never see it again. These tidings were highly irritating to the lady, for it seemed she was about to lose everything but perceiving what she must do to prevent the goods going to Monaco, she said, "'God knows I love you so dearly that I am very sorry to hear of your misfortune. But what's the use of becoming so upset about it? If I had the money to lend you, God knows that I should let you have it here and now, but I haven't got it. It's true that I know of someone who might help, the person who lent me the remaining five hundred florins I needed the other month, but he charges a high rate of interest. You'd have to pay him at least thirty percent if you were to borrow the money from him, and he would want something substantial by way of security.' Now I personally would be prepared for your sake to offer him all I possess, myself included, as security for whatever sum he will lend, but how are you going to guarantee the rest of the loan? Salabeato was delighted, for he knew exactly what was prompting her to do in this favour, and perceived that it was she herself who would be lending him the money. So after he had thanked her, he told her that he would not be deterred by the exorbitant rate of interest, as he needed the money very badly and he then went on to explain that by way of surety he would place the merchandise he had at the Dagana to the credit of the person who was to lend him the money. However, he wished to retain the key to the warehouse, so as to be able to display his merchandise if anyone should ask him to do so, and also to ensure that his goods were not interfered with, or exchanged, or moved elsewhere. The lady agreed that this was a wise precaution, and declared that a surety of this kind would be more than adequate. Early next morning, she sent for a broker who was privy to most of her secrets, and having explained the situation to him, she gave him a thousand gold florins, which the broker lent to Salabaeto, having first ensured that all the goods that Salabaeto had at the Dagana were transferred to his own name. Various documents were signed and countersigned by the two men, and when all was settled between them, they went their separate ways to attend to their other affairs. At the earliest opportunity, Salabaeto took ship with his 1,500 gold florins and returned to Pietro della Canigiano in Naples, whence he made full remittance to his principals in Florence for the woolens with which they had originally sent him to Palermo. And having paid Pietro and all his other creditors, he made merry with Canigiano over the trick he had played on the Sicilian woman, celebrating his success for several days on end. He then left Naples, and having decided to retire from commerce, made his way to Ferrara. When Gianco Fiore learned that Salabaeto was no longer to be found in Palermo, her suspicions were aroused, and she began to wonder what had become of him. After waiting for at least two months without seeing any sign of him, she got the broker to force a way into the warehouse. And having first tested all of the casks, which were supposed to be full of oil, she discovered that they were filled with sea water, apart from about a firkin of oil that was floating at the top of each cask near the bunghole. Then, untying the bales, she found that all except two, which did consist of woolens, were filled with tow instead. And in fact, to cut a long story short, 
the whole consignment was worth no more than two hundred florins. On perceiving that she had been outwitted, Giancofiore lamented long and bitterly over the five hundred florins she had repaid, and even more over the thousand she had lent, frequently repeating to herself the old saw, Honesty's the better line when dealing with a Florentine. And so it was that, having burnt her fingers and covered herself in ridicule, she discovered that some people are every bit as knowing as others. No sooner had Dionir reached the end of his story than Loretta, knowing the time had come for her to abdicate, commended the advice given by Pietro della Canigiana, which to judge by its effects had been very sound, and having also praised the sagacity of Salabaetto, who was no less worthy of commendation for translating Pietro's advice into practice, she removed the laurel crown from her head and placed it upon Amelia's, saying with womanly grace, I know not, madam, whether you will make an agreeable queen, but we shall certainly have a fair one. See to it, then, that your actions are in keeping with your beauty. Loretta then resumed her seat, leaving Amelia feeling somewhat ill at ease, not so much in having been made their queen as in hearing herself praised in public for something to which ladies are wont to attach most importance, and her face turned the colour of fresh roses at dawn. But having lowered her gaze until her blushes had receded, she summoned the steward and made appropriate arrangements for their activities of the morrow, after which she addressed them as follows. Delectable ladies, we may readily observe that when oxen have laboured in chains beneath the yoke for a certain portion of the day, their yoke is removed and they are put out to grass, being allowed to roam freely through the woods wherever they please. Similarly, we may perceive that gardens stocked with numerous different trees are much more beautiful than forests consisting solely of oaks. And therefore, having regard to the number of days during which our deliberations have been confined within a predetermined scheme, I consider that it would be both appropriate and useful for us to wander at large for a while, and in doing so recover the strength for returning once again beneath the yoke. Accordingly, when we resume our storytelling on the morrow, I do not propose to confine you to any particular topic. On the contrary, I desire that each of us should speak on whatever subject he or she may choose, it being my firm conviction that we shall find it no less rewarding to hear a variety of themes discussed than if we had restricted ourselves to one alone. Moreover, by doing as I have suggested, we shall all recruit our strength, and thus my successor will feel more justified in forcing us to observe our customary rule. The members of the company applauded the Queen for proposing so sensible an arrangement, and rising from their places they turned to various forms of relaxation, the ladies making garlands and otherwise amusing themselves whilst the young men sang songs and played games. In this way they whiled away their time until supper, to which in due course they gaily addressed themselves, sitting in a circle round the delectable fountain. And when supper was over, they freely engaged in their usual pastimes of singing and dancing. Finally, the queen, out of deference to the ways of her predecessors, ordered Panfilo to sing a song, notwithstanding the fact that various members of the company had already sung several of their own accord. And so Panfilo promptly began as follows. Love, I take such delight in thee, and find such joy and pleasure in thy name, that I am happy burning in thy flame. And he goes on, which I won't read. Thus did Panfilo's song come to an end, and though everyone had joined wholeheartedly in the refrain, there was not a single person present who did not attend more carefully than usual to the words, striving to guess what Panfilo had implied he was obliged to conceal. And while several formed their own opinions as to his meaning, they were all well wide of the mark. 
But in the end, the Queen, perceiving that Panfilo's song was finished, and that the young ladies and the gentlemen were showing clear signs of fatigue, ordered them all to retire to bed. Here ends the eighth day of the Decameron. Bitching About the Decameron is created by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening.